Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. We are beginning week number four in the story. So if you want to turn over to chapter four, or if you do not have your story Bible, we're going to begin in Exodus chapter one. Exodus chapter one this morning. Just to give as a way of recap to what we've already been reading in the story these past few weeks, we see three themes that begin to emerge that really cover, in some, some ways, the rest of the Old Testament. The first thing we see is this, that God is sovereign. He is creator. He is all-powerful. He, he is able to speak forth oceans and mountains and stars and galaxies, and he's able to, in all these things, God is creator and all-powerful. Last night I was reading in Isaiah chapter 40, it says this, the nations are a drop in the bucket. The nations are just dust on the scales. God picks up the whole earth as though it were a grain of sand. Okay, if you can imagine, this tiny little grain of sand. God picks up the earth like that. This is an almighty, powerful God that we are looking at and who is revealing himself to us. The second thing that we see that in, in the midst of all of creation, God creates mankind. And mankind is, is sinful and rebellious against God, but it is loved by God. Mankind is loved by God. Mankind is the, the, the crown, the pinnacle of God's creation. Of all the created order, of everything that we see created, whether it's the galaxies or the, the oceans, the planets, the, the, the animals on all the earth, God says, look, there's one in particular, and that's mankind that I've chosen to, to create in my image, and therefore valuable and important and loved by God. Second or Third, we see this, that God has a plan of redemption, that God's plan is to pursue and God is on mission to redeem his people back from their own rebellion and sin. God is on mission. Now, if we take those three points, we can pretty much take the rest of the Old Testament and put it into that grid. It, whether it's just a few chapters or it's a whole book of the Bible, it fits into that grid. That God is creator, he is sovereign, mankind is rebellious yet loved, and God's on a plan to redeem and restore and bring back to himself the very people who've rebelled against him. Those are what God is doing over and over and over again. And so we are going to read in, in the story this morning the same pattern playing itself out, and then we're going to be, begin to see this pattern play itself out for the rest, really, almost for the rest of the entire story that we're going to read together. So we read last week and the week before about Abraham, Father Abraham, who is the father of the, the, the Jewish nation. And in the story, Abraham's grandchildren and great-grandchildren were brought into Egypt somewhere along the, the timeline of 18 to 1900 BC. And then in doing this, God makes a promise to Abraham. And God's promise to Abraham is this, essentially, I'm going to make you great and you're going to be blessed in order to be a blessing. In Genesis chapter 12, he says, look, I'm going to bless you in order that you would be a blessing. The same is still true for us today. God's purposes, God's blessing in our lives, which is much, which is much greater than, than, than money and, and, and health and all those kinds of things, it's this relationship with God that is the ultimate treasure. 
that in this blessing of relationship with Almighty God, he says, I have blessed you in order that you would be a blessing. We see this from the very beginning of the Bible. This, this in itself works its way out through the rest of the stories of the Bible. This is one of the, the common themes that runs through the scriptures, that God's purpose and relationship and blessing is in order that we would be a blessing to everyone else. And so we see Abraham in this, this blessing of, of Almighty God to him in Genesis chapter 12. But he also makes this promise to Abraham. And this is in Genesis chapter 15. This is God's promise. Now, we, we have, sometimes we have the promises of God put on a plaque and then we put them in our home. And, and it's, you know, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. Or, you know, all those great things that we want to put on a plaque. But God's promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 is this. I'm going to read this to you. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. So can you imagine that having that promise to you? Your descendants are going to be enslaved and mistreated and abused in a foreign land. No one's going to put that on a plaque, right? But this is the other half of the promise. But I will punish the nation that they serve as slaves. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. So this is exactly what we're going to read about today. The fulfillment of this promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. This is, this is the unfolding of everything that God said was going to happen. So let's pick up the story after God had spoken this to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. We're now going to read some 350 years later since the Israelites have settled in Egypt beginning in chapter 4 or Exodus chapter 1. Now Joseph and all his brothers in that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. The land of Egypt is filled with the Israelites. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we will deal shrewdly with them, for they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies and fight against us and leave, leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Python and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. They made, them their bit, they made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and all the kinds of work in the fields. And all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Then Pharaoh gave this order to his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile. But let every girl live. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it along, among the reeds on the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw a baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. 
This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby, which was her baby, and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew old, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Now, after this story, we pick up where Moses has now grown. He's been delivered out. He's, been, he's lived in, in the best palaces of Egypt. He's been educated in the Egyptian system. He's been Pharaoh's daughter. He's been provided with all the luxuries of life. Anything that you would wish to have, Moses has had in the palace. And so one day Moses, this, he's grown at the time, goes out and, and goes amongst the people. And as Moses is walking amongst the people, he witnesses an Egyptian slave master beating an Israelite. And so as he sees this happen, he becomes enraged and he murders the Egyptian slave master and quickly buries him in the sand, hoping that no one saw what he had done. Well, the next day, two Israelites were arguing and Moses is amongst the people again and he sees the two Israelites arguing and says, look, you guys need to quit fighting. And one of the Israelites says to him, are you going to kill me like, the, like the, the Egyptian slave master that you murdered yesterday? And at this point, Moses realized there's something, I am in big trouble because word has gotten out. And so Moses at this point becomes public enemy number one. He's the top of the most wanted list in Egypt. And he knows Pharaoh's herd and he gets out of town as quick as he can. Well, he leaves Egypt and arrives in a place called Midian. And in Midian, he begins a new life. He gets married, has children, becomes a shepherd, watches over flocks, and he lives in Midian for 40 years, completely starting over his life all over again. Lives there for 40 years until he encounters God. If you want to turn with me over to page 45 in the story. Page 45 or Exodus 2, verses 23 through Verses or chapter 3, verse 15. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The long period of 40 years. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, the one we talked about in Genesis 15 with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone to over to look, God called out to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. God is establishing protocol. We don't just, in a sense, roll up on God to show up like we are. God says, No, no, look. 
you can only approach me in the way that I say you can approach me. We never approach God on our own. There's always a way and a protocol in which we are able to approach God at all times. He says, Moses, take off your sandals. You're on holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people of the Israelites out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose that I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. And so the first thing we, we encounter here is this. God remembers his promises. God remembers his promises. What sets the whole narrative in action is the fact that God has heard the cries of his people and he says God remembered his promise. This is what begins everything. God remembering his promises to his people. And going back to Genesis 15, he's remembering. He said to to Abraham, look, your descendants are going to be enslaved for 400 years and mistreated. And then I'm going to bring them out of slavery into a land flowing with milk and honey. What's so amazing about this to me as I read this is to think think of this. That God makes promises. That he even makes promises. Is there any other God who's able to make promises like this? Who's able to enter into a relationship with people in such a way that he says, look, I'm going to make promises to you and I'm going to fulfill everything that I've ever promised. I will never forget my promises. I'm never going to just disappear or not show up. I'm always going to remember my promises. 2 Peter 3.9 says this, God is not slow in keeping his promises. God always keeps his promises. And this is the God of the promise, the God that revealed himself to Abraham. He says, this is my name. I am who I am. Then he goes on and says, I tell them that I am has sent me to you. The Lord, or I am the God of your fathers. And so in the Hebrew language, this I am name is Y-H-W-H, which is unpronounceable because there's no vowels. It's, it's really the, the way the Hebrews would say it is Yahweh. 
God reveals himself as Yahweh and says, this is my personal name. Or translated into English, it's, it's Lord. So whenever we read in the Bible and we see the word Lord, but it's all in capital letters, it's this name Yahweh. It's his personal name. God says, I'm going to reveal to you who I am. He's saying, look, I am self-existence. I exist all to myself. I don't need anything for existence. I exist all to myself. And just like the, the bush was burning, but the bush was not consumed, the fire didn't need the bush to burn, in the same way, God needs nothing to exist. He doesn't need people. He doesn't need food. doesn't need sleep. needs nothing to exist. He's fully self-existent. He says, I am who I am. Or in another way of saying that, I will be who I will be. This is who I am. There's different ways that we describe God. He's, he's almighty. He's powerful. He's sovereign. He's creator. All these great things, but they're only a really a, a sliver of who he is. They're just different characteristics of who God is. And in this, God is saying, I'm going to reveal to you my personal name. So for me, I'm, I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm an uncle, I'm a, I'm a cousin, I'm a son. But those are just aspects of who I am. For God, he says, I'm going to reveal my personal name. I am who I am. I, am, I don't need anything. You can't describe me with just one aspect or another. I'm fully, I am who I am. Now, God tells Moses in this revelation of who he is, he says, look, I want you to go back to Pharaoh in Egypt, the king of Egypt, go back to him and tell him to release my people from their slavery. Now, if you can imagine, there's, there's so many people in Egypt and there's a million plus Israelites doing slave labor, building cities, taking care of, the, uh, of all of Egypt. And you're going to go back to Pharaoh and say, look, all this free labor that has been building your towns and your roads and your infrastructure and everything else that has been provided for you by these slave labor, I want you just to and just release them to go and basically destroy the economy of Egypt. If you can imagine here in Northwest Indiana, if there was a million people who worked for free, but not only worked for free, but then they provided the materials that were needed to build roads and hospitals and schools and everything that would just be built and maintained and cared for by people who, were, who weren't paid at all, provided their own materials. And then one day we'd say, hey, why don't you guys just go ahead and leave? Things would begin to crumble because guess who has to do the work now? We do. The ones in power has to begin doing the work. And so for Pharaoh, this is no win for him. He's, he, Moses knows that Pharaoh's going to say, no way. Not in a million years am I going to let everyone go. That's ridiculous. So this is what God says to do. God says, look, I want you to go back and tell Pharaoh to release all the people. And God says, and by the way, he's not going to go for it, obviously. But I've got a plan. And here's what we're going to do. I'm going to leash, unleash mighty judgments against the Egyptians in such a way that he will be forced to release all the people. And it'll be, he's going to say, get out of here, go. And when, when you go, when, when the Israelites leave Egypt, they're going to go with all the, the gold and silver and clothing in Egypt. They're going to plunder the Egyptians on the way out. So not only are, is Pharaoh going to let you go, but he's going to allow the Israelites to plunder all the Egyptians on the way out the door as they walk through on foot. So what's this process of judgment and liberation going to look like? So the first thing we read was this, that God remembers his, what? 
promises, right? Second thing we, we see is this, that God reveals his power, okay? God remembers his promises. He reveals his power, okay? So this is the way God's going to do this. Moses is going to go back to Pharaoh and say, God's going to unleash these mighty plagues against the Egyptians. And so he does, exactly as God said it's going to be. There is a, there's a, a demonstration of God's unfathomable power against the Egyptians in these plagues. So there's the plague of the Nile turning to blood, and then there's frogs and gnats and flies and a plague on cattle, boils, hail, locust, darkness, and then finally the last one, which is the death of the firstborn. See, the Egyptians were not poly, or weren't monotheists. The Egyptians were polytheists, I meaning they believed in a pantheon of gods, that there was a God that oversaw the Nile River and, and kept that flowing. There was a God that helped produce crops. There was a God who watched over the livestock. And so there's all these various Egyptian deities that looked over the various aspects of day-to-day life. And so if there was a, a shortcoming in crops, we'd pray to the, the, um, the God of the, of the crops who would then provide for us. And so what God does one plague at a time is that he completely dismantles the Egyptian religious system. God, one plague at a time, says, look, I'm going to take the gods that you have been trusting in, the gods that you have put your faith in, the gods that you are praying to and worshiping, and I'm going to take them one plague at a time and completely break them over my knee, that there's no way that they can stand against me. So you're praying to the the sun god? Well, I'm going to make it dark for three days, and there's nothing that he or anyone else can do. The lights come on when I say they come back on again. And so God, as a whole, he's taking all these plagues, and he's matching them up against all of Pharaoh's and the Egyptians' gods, and he's saying, you don't stand a chance. I am the one calling the shots. I am the one who decides when, when this happens or this happens. Your gods don't stand a chance against the one God, and that is the great I am. He is the one who's in charge. He is the one who calls the shots, and everything else is futile. Now, as much destruction as we see from the Egyptians in their, in their country, I believe this is really a story of God's grace in a lot of ways to the Egyptians. What he's doing is saying, look, I want to reveal to you the one true God. I'm going to reveal to you that your gods don't have a chance. This is an opportunity to see that your gods are false gods. There is nothing that they can do. There's no chance for them to stand against me. God's going to give us an opportunity, in a sense, for the Egyptians to see God for who he really is, as powerful and mighty as a deliverer. He's giving the Egyptians every opportunity in the world to say, look, we've had enough of these other gods who, who cannot stand up to Almighty God. We're going to worship and follow him. In a lot of ways, this is God's grace to the Egyptians. But not only do they need to hear that then, we need to hear this today. Our society, or as a church, when we think about the, all the things going on in the world today, we think about, well, we need better education, we need more streamlined government, we need a stronger military, we need more children banging on things. <laughs> or even on a smaller scale, we need comfort and ease and pleasure. 
And so in our lives, we think, well, this is what's going to solve our problems. We're going to run to these things. And God, I believe, would remind us today that those things are not a place where we put our trust. I remember 9-11 14 years ago or 13 years ago when it happened. The, the hope for, for us as a nation was this. We're going to build a bigger, bigger military. And the military is going to come and it's going to, it's going to bring peace and we don't have to worry about a thing. And there's nothing against the military, but our, our peace, our hope, is not in a stronger military. It is in Almighty God, that He is the one who brings peace. He is the one who brings hope. So we don't run to those things. They're just false gods. They, they can't promise to ultimately deliver us. So in the very last plague was the plague of the firstborn. And God said what He's going to do is, is He's going to take all of the of the all of the the firstborn children of the Egyptians, and he's going to wipe them out. That in one night, every male child in Egypt will die. And the only way for the Israelites to, in a sense, be passed over from this judgment was they would need to do this. They would need a substitute for them. So the, what what the Egyptians or what the Israelites would need to do is they need to take a lamb, need to kill the lamb. And take the blood of the lamb and wipe it over the doorpost of their home. And in doing so, the destroyer who was coming to, to kill all the firstborn children would pass over the Egyptian households and they would be spared because blood had already been spilled. A life had already given. There was a substitute made available for the Israelites and it was the lamb. And so the Israelites had a substitute. The lamb died in their place so that judgment would be passed over. Now, Let's go back. So we said, first thing, God remembers his promises. God reveals his God also redeems his people. God redeems his people. So God remembers his promises, reveals his power, and lastly, God redeems his people. God said he would do this. I want to read just on page 48 in the story. This encounter that God has where he's speaking to Moses, and God says, look, this is what I'm going to do. This is Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 8. Watch what God is going to do. If you have your, your books and you want to underline, just underline the parts where God says, I will do this, okay? Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with a mighty axe of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. God says, I will, I will, I will. This is what God is doing over and over and over again. And if you, if you see this, you realize that God is the one taking action. God says, look, basically, I'm going to open the door, just walk through it. I'm going to provide a way, you guys just receive it. God is the one taking action over and over and over again. He is the one who set his face to redeem his people. The Egyptians have no power against God. And as a matter of fact, the Israelites are going to walk out of Egypt, completely plundering the place from top to bottom, with Egypt essentially destroyed from the top down, without ever lifting a finger against the Egyptians. They didn't do anything. 
No one, no one had a sword. No one stood up against Pharaoh. There wasn't riots. There wasn't people demanding their way. They simply just walked out of Egypt on foot, unharmed, untouched, plundering the Egyptians as they went. See, God is still in the business of redeeming his people from the slavery of sin. That night, the destroyer passed through Egypt, and it said a great cry arose in the land, one that had never been heard before or that would never be heard again. There was a great cry as the firstborn male children of the Egyptians passed away from Pharaoh's house all the way down to the lowest slave in Egypt. God has redeemed his people out of the slavery and bondage of the Egyptians by the blood of the Lamb. Now I want to fast forward for us 2,000 years where Jesus Christ came to earth. And in 1 John one twenty nine, we read this. Behold, when, when, when John the Baptist saw Jesus, he says this, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In 1 Corinthians 5.7, we read this. Paul writing, he says, For Christ... Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. They're viewing the the work, the atonement of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection on the cross, they're viewing it through a Passover lens. They're understanding that, look, that this Passover that was celebrated by the Israelites from their slavery in Egypt, that this great deliverance that they experienced was really only a shadow of something to come later. That their, their temporary delivery out of physical bondage and slavery to the Egyptians, that through Jesus Christ is the real thing. That the Apostle Paul says, look, Jesus Christ is that Passover lamb. That he has been sacrificed for our sins that held us in bondage to Satan and to death. That Jesus Christ is the one who has set us free. He is the lamb whose blood has been shed. He is the one whose blood has been, has been covered over the doorposts of our lives that now we have been set free because of Jesus Christ. That is what God has done. So 2,000 years later, our sin has been passed over by the blood of the Lamb. It is because of Jesus Christ that he has brought us out of slavery. It is because of Jesus Christ that we have been given new life. And just like the Egyptians that night were powerless as the Israelites left, so for us, we walk free and in freedom and in new life because of Jesus Christ. And there is nothing that can stop that ever. There's nothing that could bring us back into bondage. There's nothing that can hold us, hold us back because of what Jesus Christ has done. As a matter of fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, we read that we have been delivered out of the bondage of sin and slavery to Satan and brought into the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the Son whom God loves. That is what we have in Jesus Christ. So as we, as we look back and we read about this great deliverance, let us keep in mind that it's just a shadow of the greater deliverer. That the, the Passover, that Passover is just a shadow of the Passover lamb that was sacrificed. It, and that is Jesus Christ. We're going to pray this morning and, and celebrate communion. And communion for us is a way in which we celebrate this Passover moment. It's a way in which we celebrate the fact that we have been brought from death unto life, that we have been given new hope, that God has revealed himself in power and in glory and in majesty to redeem and save a people for himself. I want to encourage you this morning. 
if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ for the salvation, for your sins to be forgiven, today can be your day. Today can be the day where we say, Jesus Christ, I believe that you died for my sins. And just like the, just like the Israelites, their sin was passed over, their judgment was passed over because of the Lamb. So now today, my sin can be passed over because of the blood of Jesus Christ. So we're going to distribute this. And while we do this, I always encourage us to take a moment and communicate with Almighty God and give thanks for our deliverance. Give thanks for the things that he's done and give to him the glory that is due his name.